All right, guys. So today we have a podcast that's very special to me. We have Dr. Scott Stevenson and Dr. Eric Helms with us today. Uh, both of these guys I really respect a lot. I think they're some of the best and most intelligent guys in the industry. So if you don't know them, Dr. Scott Stevenson has a master's and a PhD in exercise physiology. He is ACSM and NSCA certified. He has a graduate certificate in gerontology and he is a licensed acupuncturist who's been lifting for over 30 years, has done tons of competitions, uh, has books. He's a really prolific guy out in the field. Dr. Eric Helms has a master's in sports nutrition, a master's in exercise science, a PhD in strength and conditioning, and he is now a research fellow at AUT. So both of these guys are highly qualified and been doing this for a very long time. I hope you guys really enjoy the podcast. We're going to have part one on my channel, and then you can go to the 3DMJ channel to check out part two. All right, everybody. So today we have Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Scott Stevenson with us today. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Happy sir. to be on. Thanks for having me. So um, this is actually an important podcast for me, and it's kind of funny because a lot of times we'll, I'll see people on Instagram, fitness industry, but not even just fitness industry, just kind of like how social media is nowadays. And people, they kind of like act like fangirls over people who really aren't, you know, like they're not, it's not like you're meeting like Dwayne Johnson or something, but people really build a lot of people up. Um, but having said that, that kind of is this for me today, um, because you two are two that I really respect in this industry. Um, and have for a long time. And I've told numerous people that, you know, this guy, Scott Stevenson, and this guy, Eric Helms, are the two that I really, like, look up to in the industry. Because you're obviously both very moral. You don't try to like, sell bullshit to people. Um, and you've been doing this for a long time. You put out a lot of evidence-based stuff. So for me, this is a pretty um, – this is a podcast I've been looking forward to. And I reached out to both of you about charities that I was going to donate to for the podcast – um, so Eric, if you could just briefly explain yours and, um, then go, we'll go to you, Scott. For sure. Well, first just want to say that's, that's very kind. I'm honored to hear that. And thank you. And by your intro, I thought you were going to have a surprise guest of Dwayne, the rock Johnson. From Austin. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little disappointed, but I guess it's going to be all right. We got float emoji seven. across when we, yeah, when we exactly. podcast this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, uh, I started a campaign, uh, this year, uh, called into the light. Um, which is through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And this is the 10-year anniversary of my father passing away, who took his own life, which was probably one of the um, most momentous and awful things that's happened in my life. And it's taken me until now to be public about it. So I'm just very uh, grateful that you are, you're, 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 you've, you've helped me and donated to it and you're giving it some more promotion um, because I think think the one of the worst parts about suicide is that um, it's not talked about, it's stigmatized, and it stays in the dark. Um, and that, I think, acts against encouraging people to uh, talk about it, get the help they need, and, uh, and treat it like something serious and, and uh, understand that they're not alone. So I just really appreciate you, uh, you sharing this, and it's an honor to be on. Thank you. Sure, yeah, very happy to do it. And uh, Scott, you and I talked about yours briefly. If you want to go into that, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the kind words too. Um, the check is always in the mail for those. I appreciate <laughs> it. And Eric, that's um, that's a phenomenal charity. I, I thank you for starting that up and doing that. It's I think just the public awareness of just getting people to to realize that hey, this is it's something you can't it can't be addressed after the fact. 
and there almost always are some warning signs. People know what's going on there. Um, you know when someone really is thinking about that. I have one of my best friends is a therapist, and uh, we talked about this, you know, quite a bit. And I've got a sister who's been troubled too, and she's come very, very close many, many times. Um, so yeah, that's just just can be such a waste of life in so many ways. So that's it's a beautiful charity. Um, the one Thanks, I man. picked is yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. The one I picked. Uh, a guy by the name of Jason Wolf, actually, who probably listens to this podcast, listens to my podcast, the Muscle Minds podcast, contacted me uh, two, three months ago in Sebring, Florida, a couple, uh, couple hours away from here. Um, a person went into the SunTrust Bank there and just opened fire. Um, mm. I'm not sure exactly what his circumstances were, obviously not in his right mind, and he killed five women, um, leaving them uh, um, without mothers in those families. I think I, I was there. We already had an event a couple of weeks ago that I did with Paul Carter um, just to raise more money for this um, for this fund, the Sebring Strong Fund, it's called. Um, but one of the women had seven children, I believe. It was their, I think that might have been one of her very first day of work. She was working two yeah. other jobs to try to support her family. So really kind of a, a cool phenomenon. Not that obviously this happened, but it's a small community, and they all banded together. And they've created this GoFundMe account. Um, Jason just stepped up. He felt the calling to do this. And he contacted me. I said, yeah, of course, absolutely. I love to, I love to talk for a good awesome, purpose. So, um, yeah, that's why I wanted to make that my charity. Those, those, those families will be struggling for a while, you know, just with the grieving process, not to mention financially. So every little, every little bit helps. Just kids for – just toys for Christmas for those kids, those sorts of things. It would just be wonderful. So the Sebring right. Strong Fund is the one I chose. Great. Yeah. And I like, you know, you both obviously have um, charities that are very like, dear to your heart. Uh, and I'll obviously put the links in the description below for everybody who wants to contribute. So um, getting into getting into the discussion here, you know, I think most of the professionals we talk to in this field, it's one of those situations where you agree on 95 percent of the things. But those 95 percent aren't as interesting to talk about because, you know, we just pretty much agree. So uh, <coughs> there's there's a few key differences, I think, in how you guys approach things. And actually, um, a little story here before I even started this podcast. So I started in, I think, like October is when I first started releasing things. Um, part of that is, is really because of you, too. You, you two were the first people that I reached out to because, Eric, I don't know if you remember this, but um, I had reached out to you on Facebook about kind of wanting to continue in the exercise science field, because, mm -hmm. you know, what I do now is considerably different than that. <laughs> and you had sent me a, a voice message on that. And I thought that was really cool. And then Scott, you and I have talked for probably close to four years now. Um, and so I thought you guys would both be great. But I actually reached out to Steve Hall, who has the Revive Stronger podcast. And I was like, you know, you should get Scott Stevenson on with one of these guys like Eric Helms or Mike Isretel, because they have really different approaches. Um, and I've obviously had Steve on too, and I like him a lot. And then after like, starting the podcast i was like well i'll just do that myself you know i'll just have them both on and that's kind of like how it kind of came to be so um you guys do have some different approaches and scott your i guess your program that you're kind of known for now is fortitude training um so yep <laughs> so uh that the first thing i want to talk about is you have stretches pretty much on every day um and you have there's three different types of stretches you know there's the really intense um, um there's the occlusion stretches and then there's just kind of like the flexibility type stretches and eric I know there was recently the paper in mass on the stretching. I think that was the intraset stretching, and that's obviously very different than intense stretching. Um, but I don't, I haven't really heard you recommend much in the way of stretching. Whereas Scott, it's a really 
core part of your program. Um, and it obviously was with um, Dante for DC training for years. Uh, so Scott, if maybe if you could start your rationale for including it pretty much every day in some way, and then we can hear Eric's take on it. Yeah, a lot of that's really just empirical things that I figured out that I actually experienced when I did DC training in, in years past. Um, Dante had a singular extreme stretch, which a lot of times is a loaded stretch. And the idea is there is ba basically you're combining two things. You're combining load, um, a fairly heavy load. So you're producing an isometric contraction that would last on the order of maybe 60 to 90 seconds. And you're also going to provide an occlusion effect because you're holding the load. And it's isometric. Anything above like 40 to 60 percent of an MVC is going to is going to prevent blood flow in out of the muscle to some degree. Um, almost entirely, especially with the loads people would typically use for a DC training uh, extreme stretch. And I, I simply noticed um, actually several things. One, um, it seemed to, the pain uh, of doing so made everything seem relatively less difficult to a certain degree. So uh, I think it had a psychological effect. Um, uh, I, especially in the quads, and I, I think this, this is not any sort of magical effect but one of the things when you do a quad stretch, if you pull your ankle back behind and do a quad stretch after training, training thighs, the rectus femoris gets an extreme uh, amount of blood flow occlusion that you normally wouldn't have. And you can feel it pretty intensely there, especially if you drive into hip extension. So I noticed great quad separation. A lot of people claim this. I don't think it was anything magical about creating separation between the, uh, the fascial layers of the muscle. In that case, it was simply a matter of the rectus femoris getting a unique training stimulus that it doesn't otherwise get. So that made sense to me. <clears throat> and then there was sort of a muscular endurance effect that came from that. Those, those stretches are very, very difficult. So it made, it, I think it probably, it's hard to quantify. There was no study that was done in this in any way, shape, or form. But it allowed for a few more reps at the end of higher rep sets that I wouldn't have otherwise, otherwise got. So when I, um, I took that, there's also, a, there's also a particular study where they, they use like a 60-second isometric um, contraction to produce um, muscle hypertrophy. So isometric contractions um, at, uh, I think this was at like 70% of an MVC um, for a minute or 90 seconds. Those types of stretches or those types of contractions, excuse me, can produce muscle growth with, with or without a stretch. Isometric contractions can do that. So this is sort of a way of adding, adding on to your normal concentric, eccentric, typical repetitions, another stimulus for producing muscle growth. Um, so the more ways, this is sort of the idea of daily undulating periodization, um, the more ways, especially if they're novel, that you can use to stimulate muscle growth, the better off you are as long as you're not doing too much, of course, um, and pushing towards an overreaching situation. So with DC training, that's not the, not the issue for the most part. You bury yourself with one or two and maybe three sets, and then you add a stretch. You come back and do that three or four days later. So I like that idea. Some of those stretches being loaded stretches were simply not um, – people tend to go overboard on all sorts of things. There were stories of people, like, wrecking their knees doing these stretches, like just being just kind of asinine, not really thinking with any common sense. So, And some stretches just don't lend themselves to doing some sort of a loaded stretch. So I came up with what I just called an occlusion stretch. It was essentially the same idea. You put the muscle in a stretch position, and then you produce a contraction. And this way, let's say, let's say you've done a, on a particular day, 
with Fortitude Training, you've done a, uh, a like a mainly a lower and middle pec type of training, done declines and some sort of flat movement. And but you really feel like because you're only you, you want to you want to distribute the stimulus across the pec that you didn't hit the upper chest as much. Well, you can do an occlusion stretch that day in a way and at an angle that would target the upper upper pec musculature, produce a contraction there, and in that particular day, sort of round out the stimulus for the muscle. There'll be some days, like for instance, if you hit the quads, you want to do a quad stretch, you didn't feel much on the rectus femoris. Um, so you can stretch in that way. So the occlusion stretches were a way to sort of um, be almost auto-regulatory in the angle of the stretch, um, as well as how much tension you're producing because you're not trying to like on a day when your joints and tendons aren't feeling that good, pick up a heavy dumbbell or what have you and go into a deep pec stretch when it's not probably your best option that day. And the third stretch that I have, which you mentioned, is just, just kind of a flexibility stretch. This is the whole, the whole idea of stretching and injury prevention is a, is a bit of a mixed bag research-wise. Definitely these stretches all happen after you've done the primary training for the muscle. So you're not doing like any ballistic or heavy intense stretching before you go and train the muscle that can inhibit a myotetic stretch reflex, reduce training performance, which you definitely don't want to do when you're in the gym. But those flexibility stretches are just something that I personally think I've benefited from. I know, especially sitting at my desk all day long doing this, I need to stretch out my pecs. Almost every, every time I go to the gym, sitting all day long, it just feels very good to do. You can make an argument, as I prob- you probably heard me talk about before, Dave, um, you know, it doesn't take much in terms of stretching and movement to prevent shortening of the connected tissue and muscle link. There's a particular study in, um, in mice where the, they casted the plantar flexures of the mice and it only took like, they have to cast them every day, but like 30 minutes of passive stretch to prevent the shortening of the Achilles tendon, the whole plantar flexure um, complex. So that's 30 minutes out of, you know, the 24 hour day, just providing some range of motion. So not that 30 seconds is necessarily equivalent to that. That's sort of an external validity issue. But it doesn't take much in terms, and you know, of course, that when you go in and stretch, like, oh, my gosh, I'm tight as hell. It gives you some biofeedback for the hamstrings, for the pecs, wherever the musculature might need some stretching. And I've just found that as an older guy who's been doing this for like 38 years that I need to stretch somewhat. And so that helps me, I think, probably prevent losing range of motion that I would I wouldn't even be aware of, actually, um, if I didn't do that stretching. If I never stretched in that way where I'm thinking about, let's say, lat flexibility, it would never occur to me if I didn't have that built into my program. And I would lose that flexibility. Who knows? No direct studies on that that I know of. But that's probably not the best thing in terms of preventing injuries um, to be training, you know, in that end range of motion when I'm never there other than when I'm loaded doing those exercises. Sure. So I think that's sort of the logic behind it. The research is pretty thin, though. But so far, I don't think it's hurting anyone to do those, at least the flexibility stretches. So those are my, sure. my general thoughts. Awesome. Yeah. And I, th- I think that recent study was probably, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, it probably was more of in line with the flexibility, maybe occlusion type. It, it wasn't like super intense stretching, was it? No, the recent study was uh, they would do an exercise for a given muscle group resistance training and then they would do a 30 second hold and they had pictures they're just kind of like your standard stuff like you yeah. know being in horizontal uh you know abduction for for the pec you know do, and doing a, a stretch for each one of the given muscle groups in the training program uh and doing that during the rest period cool cool um 
So it's did, the old did Perillo you... style. I mean, John Perillo's been doing that for 30 years with people, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, Eric, do you have any general thoughts on that? I mean, I know from the routines I've seen or the principles I've seen you talk about, I don't see too much on stretching. So do you just think maybe the evidence isn't super strong there or not great experiences on your end with it? So this might turn into an overly long monologue, so feel free to just slap me around uh, digitally. So first, I think it's important to discuss uh, what makes it into a program that I'm willing to put out on the Internet versus write for a singular person. Um, and the difference between what I do when I'm coaching someone and what I do when I'm writing a program that's going to be bought by thousands of people uh, or, or read by or seen by. Um, and to be a good coach, you want to have a tool belt that has a lot of tools so that you're able to fix a lot of different situations. Um, when you aren't presented with a given situation, but more so you're going, right, this is a bodybuilding program. Okay, I can drill it down a little bit more. This is a intermediate bodybuilding program. Okay, so this is for someone who wants overall hypertrophy development, who's been in the gym a couple of years, and that's all I can know about them. And I'm just going to assume everything about them. Besides that, it's just the mean average, which is very few people, but will be the closest thing to not bad for most, <laughs> right? So the, uh, the the decisions of what goes into that program versus my program for Mark or my program uh, for for Jane is is going to be different. Um, and when I decide what goes into that, it's based on uh, the hierarchy of evidence. So for anyone listening, if you want to be a quote unquote evidence based practitioner, you've got three big things you're looking at: the personal preferences of the individual and their individual needs. When writing a big picture program, you don't even have that. So you're down to two other things. Um, then you're down to your experiences as a coach and as someone working in the field. And then also the scientific literature itself. Um, and those are intertwined in that anytime you're reading a study, it's a bad idea to take the program that's in the study and apply it directly in the field. Because we're not trying to... Dis one, one study is never going to tell you what's the optimal program for bodybuilding. It's going to isolate a bunch of variables and tell you a concept. Like, for example, the, uh, the program used in this stretching study didn't have the best possible stretches, didn't have the best possible bodybuilding program. It had a controlled program in a given population, and then they did stretches between that were controlled so that they could isolate a variable. So it, it only can teach us a concept, and then we have to use our field experience and our knowledge to then apply it. So with that ridiculous preamble and disclaimer... Um, that means we're looking primarily at the research for what is going to go into this program if I write it for everybody. So that means I'm going to start with the, the most high-quality evidence that I'm sure is generalizable to everyone, which in our field is going to be a meta-analysis because we're not in medicine where we have 2,000-person RCTs, so we have to have 2,000 maybe-ish uh, total collections of combined studies from 20 different 10-person studies and, and look at the directionality. So most of the time when I'm talking about these programs, I'm looking at meta-analyses on volume, intensity, frequency, uh, proximity to failure, um, and, and then exercise selection, uh, and, and a lot of those bigger picture concepts, and then using my experience to kind of drill it all down, and then talking about periodization, how you progress that over time. Um, and some of the quote unquote, like special techniques often don't make it in there because the, the data we have on something like uh, rest pause, 
um, which you know sometimes has been really extrapolated out far by guys like Berge Fagerle, like on mile reps, for example, or uh, the the effect of stretching, which now I'll dovetail into and actually answer your question um, that folks like Scott or Dante Trudell or others over the years have implemented and used effectively uh, and seemingly with 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 at least you know anecdotal benefits. Um, so now let's talk about stretching. So we have a lot of research on stretching, very little on stretching for hypertrophy. Um, like, uh, like Scott said, we, the big things we know, stretching improves range of motion that we can say for sure. It improves your, your flexibility. Shocker. Um, <laughs> does it seem to have an effect at least in longitudinal studies on injury prevention? However, there are range of motion deficits in people with injuries, and they typically get injuries where they have a range of motion deficit. So it might be that when you apply stretches to specific problems and bring them back more to like baseline and normative values, that could be a good thing. And I agree, you probably don't want to load an end range of motion you don't have only and not even have it in normal range, like Scott was saying. Um, And then if we look at the research specifically on performance, we see that stretching can be facilitative or debilitative depending on how it's done. So overall, what's called quote-unquote dynamic stretching can improve performance. And this is using active, not necessarily explosive, but I would say specific um, levels of force in body weight, full range of motion training that is specifically meant to prepare you for what you're going to do. So this is what your average personal trainer would call movement prep. Um, So, you know, things like moving through full ranges of motion with a little bit of force and power, that's actually been shown to improve subsequent resistance training performance. Static stretching, on the other hand, just going into and holding a stretch before your resistance train, especially if it's aggressive. We're talking longer than 30 seconds, and especially if, let's say, your your pain at a 1 to 10 is, like, say, 7 or higher, that has been shown to actually degrade performance. And that makes sense, too. The muscle tendon unit will change in length and change its properties acutely, Uh, and then go back to kind of its resting length. And if you were to tell a muscle, hey, relax, get longer, and I want you to be able to be fully stretched, then go, right, and now I'm going to do a 1RM, it's going, come on, man, I thought we just discussed we were going to be doing yoga, right? Um, And you're going to see decrements in sprinting performance, lifting performance, and even decrements in hypertrophy. We've we've seen studies on that. Now, that's one thing. Um, That's acute pre-exercise stretching to, with, with the goal of actually changing the muscle uh, tendon unit's length and resting uh, status. That's not the same as some of the stuff that Scott's talking about, nor that has been researched recently. And there's been a few little pieces where we can look at this. So for one, chronic stretching in and of itself, unrelated to training, might have a benefit for some strength athletes. Um, there was a, there's a systematic review that I'm aware of where the conclusion was is that just doing static stretching outside of the gym on your own, just stretching a little bit every day, can improve bench press performance and counter movement jumps. Um, and this makes sense. These are what's called a stretch shortening cycle movement. That is a concentric follow, following and eccentric. So you've pre-stretched and preloaded your body, your passive contribution to force production like your tendon and some other stuff inside the muscle has been loaded, you're able to produce more force. So I actually have a PhD student. Her name is Alyssa, um, Alyssa Joy Spence, and she is doing her PhD here at AUT looking at a stretching intervention to improve bench press and squat performance in powerlifters. 
and there was a recent uh, couple studies that came out showing where powerlifters are typically injured and what range of motion deficits they have. And they also have shoulder range of motion deficits uh, and also some hip and knee, knee uh, range of motion deficits. So it's possible that we're, when it's not a main focus for a PhD, but it may be that if you can restore at least a quote-unquote normal range of motion in powerlifters, they might not get as many shoulder or hip injuries. Don't know. That's much more speculative. But there's a solid rationale that stretching away from training, uh, you know, very simple, just basic stretching, could improve, you know, your squat and your bench. Why not your deadlift? Because you start in a concentric, so there's no preload. So there's a big difference between acute and chronic stretching as far as the effects. And there is a potential impact on hypertrophy. If we go way back to the 70s, back when uh, ethics committees allowed us to do terrible things to animals, um, and I'm not even going to say we on that one. They allowed certain <laughs> researchers, I would never do this. I love animals too much. Yeah, it's hard. But uh, there are studies where they have done loaded stretching on the wing of a bird. Uh, and that is just basically weighting their wing. And you will see hypertrophy from that. Because that is a tension stimulus. You know, anytime you're actually pulling on, on a muscle fiber, that's, that's a tension stimulus. And if you think about it, when we train with a full range of motion with weights, you are stretching. You know, uh, how many times have you been stiff and you've gone to the gym and you can't hit depth on a squat until you're past 135 and you're up to 185, 225? Okay, now I've got the dorsiflexion, the hip flexion to actually get into to a deep squat position. Um, you're stretching under load, you know, uh, and we have data showing that resistance training improves flexibility and range of motion just as much as actual stretching. So I think people need to remember that don't put resistance training in a box. You're stretching when you lift weights. Um, we also have good data showing that when you train through long muscle lengths, that enhances hypertrophy. So there's a cool study where they had people on basically a leg extension um, and they had them train. And then they had another group that got to lie back all the way on the leg extension. So they're using an isokinetic dynamometer, which is just a, a lab-based controlled isolated joint training system. Uh, and when they were in, laid in that fullback position, putting more of a stretch on the rectus femoris, they had more hypertrophy. because so they're training through that, that long range of motion and at the, those, those peak tension po points where the, the muscle is very much being stretched. Um, now, What's the mechanism here? Some would say, oh, it's enhancing muscle damage. Well, maybe, but it's also just creating more tension because there's a greater stretch and range of motion that you're training through. So there is certainly a rationale for uh, including stretching of some type as an additional tension stimulus um, and potentially, and, and if you do have a range of motion deficit, like Scott said, maybe uh, certainly won't increase your, your risk of injury and it might potentially help, but we don't know. Um, so I think there's nothing unreasonable about using some of the the strategies that exist both in practice and now in the literature to try to enhance hypertrophy. Uh, and it's something that I think you just need to be aware there is a potential for harm if you do it incorrectly. Like if you do painful, intense stretching right before you do heavy lifting, I probably wouldn't do that. Um, personally, I think the safest thing that, that, that you could do, uh, and the most conservative, and, and I think there's nothing wrong with that when there is a potential for harm, um, would be just to once a day, just go through a full body stretching routine or do upper body, lower body alternating and be pretty aggressive about it, but take it away from training. Um, is there a potential rationale that adding it to training, like we just saw in that study, could potentially improve uh, hypertrophy as well? Certainly. Uh, I just, I don't think we know enough yet to where I'm personally confident to be like, hey, everybody, you should all be doing this. 
But I will say, hey, everybody, stretching outside of the gym when it has no potential harm uh, at all and only potential benefit, it's like, why not? Uh, and I'm very intrigued by the possibility of adding it into programs. And it has definitely been speculated on. Like uh, there was uh, a guy, uh, Nur Ikwan Muhammad. He's a, a doctor of sports science, did his PhD at AUT, and now he's at the, I think, Malaysian Institute of Sport. Um, he had an article in the Strength Conditioning Journal hypothesizing, hey, we could add stretching to hypertrophy programs. You know, this could be specifically for bodybuilding. Uh, we need more research in this area. And that was, I want to say, back in 2010 or something like that. Um, and that's a peer-reviewed published journal. So it's not like it's an unreasonable question at all. The, the, I think it just comes down for the practitioner based on what are you comfortable with? What have you seen many, many times over and over with your clients work or not work? What makes sense logically? Uh, do you know how to implement an intelligent way? And I think there's nothing wrong with including it in programs, especially for like pure bodybuilders where, yeah, so I lost a rep on my next set, but I got a full minute of additional tension. Like what's better than the other? You know, if I was a power lifter, I might be a little more concerned about, um, you know, the performance aspect. But I think it, it just depends on on who you're applying it to. Um, so, yeah, the most recent study, just to, to be clear, so everyone's on the same page. Bodybuilding program going through each muscle group, 30 second stretch, not to that being that painful, not holding it too long uh, between sets during the rest period. Enhanced hypertrophy didn't degrade performance. So there's obviously something there. Uh, and I think we just need to, to keep keep digging in the research and keep checking it out and we'll see where we go from there. Awesome. Two very in-depth answers. I have a couple, the- a couple of thoughts and responses. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just to add on to that. It's sort go of interesting. It. Like I've done several fortitude training camps now and many of those people have been doing the program and people don't like to stretch all that often. That's one of the things I've seen mm. again and again. And so many of them are doing the program. We run through sort of the didactic thing and we get in the gym and I sort of show them how to execute the program and then, for instance, we'll start with legs, usually kind of get that out of the way. And when it's time for the stretch, they're like, well, I haven't been doing the stretch. So they don't even, like, they just sort of blow that off. Um, so I like the idea of stretching just in general. I think that's a phenomenal thing to do, just probably for, for most people nowadays, as inactive as we are in, in, in first world Western society. Um, but I think there's a behavioral component to it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to, people want to go in the gym, get that part of their day done, and then the rest of the day they've other things to do. That's another reason to kind of put that on the end of the training for the muscle group. Um, one thing, and this is pure speculation, but in adding those extreme stretches, the occlusion stretches, we know that specificity of training is, is really a, a well-substantiated phenomenon, and that applies to range of motion. So if you look at, for instance, you, you know this literature, it sounds like just having looked into it with, um, with your do- doctoral student who's doing the, uh, the research with powerlifters is that it's not uncommon, at least, to find that you're getting injuries at the end range of motion. Um, So you take someone, for instance, who's now doing an extreme stretch, a loaded stretch, in that end range of motion, they're probably developing some strength, at least neurologically, in that end range of motion. And they're getting just basically used to holding loads in that end range of motion where they're most likely potentially to have an injury. So there may be some injury prevention um, phenomena going on there as well, purely neurologically, because that's not, that's not an unfamiliar place to be, because mm-hmm. they may have even gotten some range of motion-specific strength from simply doing relatively heavy isometric loading at, at those end range of motion points for various exercises. So 
that's one of the things that I, I, I hope is helping at least. It makes me feel much more comfortable when I've been able to hold heavy loads out there like that. It's, it's nothing to think about those. And I probably get better range of motion when I'm training actually too. At least that's the sense I've had. I've been doing these so long, it's hard to remember you know, back to when I first did them. But it definitely was a shocker to me when I first did it. So I just want to toss those, those ideas in. I think right, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. And I, I would agree, yeah, like if, if I was to think about the behavioral component, I'd be, I would be more confident saying, hey, just grab yourself 15 minutes after each session and that's when you're going to stretch. Then to be like, hey, stretch tonight. Because then you'll be like, well, I got tired. On the couch, <laughs> yeah. watching Netflix, not going to yeah, happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say stretching is like the one way I can relate maybe to how the general population views exercise. Because for me, starting so young, it was always like, why wouldn't you just exercise? It's just so a part of my routine that not doing it feels weird. But every time I decide I'm going to start stretching, I feel like a, a New Year, New Year's like resolutioner, where it's like, okay, I'm going to start right. stretching every night. And within like two or three weeks, I'm like, man, I could just not, not you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah it, it's just because it's not as exciting. You know, you're not setting PRs with your stretches. So it's just mm. not, you know, for me at least, it's not exciting to do it. So it just becomes kind of boring. And that's the thing, too. This is where people have gotten, and I've talked with, I've known Dante, you know, for many, many years now. And this is where people have gotten a little overboard with the extreme stretches, where people have injured themselves. You do want to progressively overload to some degree, but there is definitely a limit. You, you, you don't want to be trying to pick up 200-pound dumbbells and hold them in isometric fly for a minute. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's pretty much asinine. So people start doing that. Next thing you know, you've got joints that are starting to sublux. It's not a pretty picture. Um, and I also auto-regulate those stretches. That's one of the things I, I right. think is pretty important because you definitely don't want to start adding a stretch on top of what we know is a very, very uh, effective way to increase muscle size if you're a bodybuilder. When the stretches aren't that well substantiated, we don't know exactly how much they are helping and just say, I'm going to do the extreme heavy loading stretch and now you're putting extra stress on your nervous system because they're very, very painful. Um, they're very, very uncomfortable and potentially exacerbating uh, a tendinosis or a tendonitis that you've got outright because you just feel compelled, you've got this compulsion to do that heavy extreme stretch. Instead, auto-regulate, pick an occlusion stretch, maybe go to a different angle that's not painful, or just do a flexibility stretch, 20, 30 seconds, something that just allows you to sort of uh, field out that end range of motion and then get an idea of what's going on in your body. So it's, it's as much almost investigative type of uh, exercise, the stretches, in terms of auto-regulating, feeling out where you're, where you're at, as it is a stimulus for muscle growth, too. So it's got a dual purpose. Right, right. I'll, and mind if I chime ahead. in just for one second? I think yeah, yeah. Um, there's another cool PhD project going on. It's not my student, um, but his name is Dustin Aranchuk, and he's looking at uh, what he calls quasi-isometrics. Because um, <laughs> if you're in the... Uh, if you're in the like the pure kind of like sports science world, when you think of an isometric, you typically think of pushing against an immovable object right. with maximal force, which is more like if you you know put your arm on a, on a door and you tried to do a pec stretch, you know, and you just took it out as far as you could. And you could do that passively, not contracting, or you could do a maximal isometric in a stretch position, pushing as hard as you possibly could. Um, and I think that is probably a little safer than being on your back in a pec fly position holding you know, a 20, 30, 40 kilo, you know, dumbbell to where you could lose control. Because the worst thing with a door that's going to happen is you're going to get tired and it'll, you know, that force output will go down. Right. And 
we don't know how different these two things are because you think about it, if you're on your back and you're holding dumbbells, um, the the heaviest dumbbell you can hold is going to be a combination between you know the passive resistance of your structure and then your actual ability to just be strong and hold an isometric out here. Um, but that may actually be less force output than if you're on a door where you can push as hard as you possibly can and then you're not mm. going to move the door frame, you know. Um, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question of are those different or do they produce different adaptations? Is sure. one better? And I don't know, but I think uh, if someone is playing around, not not to, not to diminish it, because I don't think it's playing. I think there's a strong rationale here. If someone is experimenting with adding stretching as a hypertrophy stimulus, I I would probably personally recommend that they do. Um, not that you can figure out one to do for every single muscle group, but when, when, when they have the choice of doing a quasi-isometric or an isometric against an immovable object, if safety is at all a concern, if there's pain, I'd probably go with the latter. Yeah, and that, that's how I've sort of suggested to people. You've, I mean, you've got, you pick up, let's say it's, um, let's say it's a, a 50 kilo, or let's say a 40 kilo dumbbell, an 88, 90, fairly heavy dumbbell. Someone who compressed the 100s, they might use like the 70s in terms of pounds. Um, you hold that, initially it's easy. And then, you know, Henneman's size principle starts taking over. Eventually, you get some fatigue. You start you, – many people will pick that dumbbell such that they literally are getting to the end of that 60 to 90 second time period, and it's maximal effort. And that can be a somewhat unsafe place to be. And, they, and they're dumping the dumbbell on the floor, hoping that they don't tweak a rotator cuff in doing so, whereas if you're pressing against the door jam or you're in a, a power rack or a smith rack – um, and now you start, and you're auto-regulating this, maybe you're not feeling so keen that you just destroyed yourself, you're a little worn down, you do what I call the occlusion stretch, where you're just, you're pressing as hard as you feel like you can on that particular day, and just trying to give your best effort during that time, and you might be feeling a little bit wimpy, in that case, your best effort really isn't that big, but you don't have this external biofeedback coming in at you saying, oh, you're wimping out, like you're not, you're not hanging in there. So you do get, you're still going to produce probably at least 60% of an MBC, which is going to be enough to create that occlusion, the blood flow restriction. You also get to choose the angle, like I said before, so you're not constrained to some angle that maybe you've already used in the previous exercise. But it makes, it makes for something that sort of uh, tricks the ego in a certain sense, and that you can press as hard as you're willing to. And yeah, the activation pattern is going to be entirely different. So the stimulus is, is, could very well be different depending on you know, the person's just uh, natural indi- uh, tendency to push really hard. Some people would go into those occlusion stretches and, you know, maybe grimace and make it look really hard, whereas other people might really, really push themselves. And you could, of course, measure that with an EMG easily mm-hmm. to see how hard people are actually pushing relative to doing a, a loaded type of stretch with an external load like a dumbbell. So, yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. It's really quite different from the uh, – from the outside, they look very similar, but they're really quite yep. different in terms of angle, even the biomechanics, the activation, everything else is going on in terms of, yeah, yeah, exactly, the stimulus. So Awesome. You know, every once in a while, like rarely, but every once in a while, I'll get a guest on the podcast, and, you know, they'll give like a one-sentence answer or something. I kind of have to like prime along, keep going. Right. <laughs> you guys have, obviously, you guys have like this awesome vibe going back and forth. We have the opposite problem. Like right. you need to shut I us up. I can't get you like, guys to <laughs> <laughs> um, So you know, you might have a similar Eric, um, a similar answer as far as like the principle behind your answer here. 
but with Scott, you know, we kind of talk about range of motion here and almost every study I've seen on the matter discusses how full range of motion produces better results. But I know, Scott, you have some intensity techniques and partials. And even like John Meadows has talked recently about how he's like, you know, I know the studies say this, but, you know, I've built this muscle with these crazy techniques and again, partials and things like that. Um, so could you maybe discuss, Scott, why you incorporate them? Because I, I haven't personally seen literature showing a benefit from shortening the range of motion um, and some of these other techniques. But I, I know you like to incorporate them, especially on those those pump days you have. Yeah, so I have I have three. I've just called them set types. The product just get kind of Eric up to speed if he doesn't is aware of this. But I've got three set types, just to give them some names. The loading sets, just your traditional kind of six to twelve rep um, set heavy loads. Then I have a cluster set, which is uh, it's different than a rest pause, but it's a certain. I've used the word muscle round because I kind of stole the rep scheme from Leo Costa's Titan training. And then I have pump sets, which are basically. Um, uh, something to meet to create blood flow restriction, create an occlusion effect, <clears throat> and I and I I want to make those fun. That kind of training is, is diabolical if you if you if you train really really hard. Um, you have to have enough tension in the muscle in order to produce the occlusion effect. So I you know I keep the load somewhere around twenty to thirty reps. This is a rough range, and I I include those partials just I mean, and I've got very. People can do those really however they want to. That's this is the probably the kind of the loosest, but for some people the most fun set type of fortitude training. You're basically picking an exercise that is does a very good job of isolating the muscle you're trying to train, and you're doing a high rep set with it, and you're including partials in there, maintaining tension throughout the entire set in order to keep that blood flow restriction effect, the metabolic stress continuous throughout the set. Um, so the partials are there um, because they, they, they create some novelty. It's not quite as boring. You're just not doing rep after rep after rep. Um, I have, there are certain exercises, and this, is, this goes into the loading curve versus the strength curve, particular exercise. So there are certain exercises where you can tell you're just, it doesn't feel good at the end range of motion, but at a certain point in the range of motion, when you're really trying, let's say it's some sort of a pec fly machine, you're really trying to isolate the muscle that you're trying to train for that given movement in that particular range of motion, that's where you feel that muscle the best. So in that case, and this is really sort of an instinctive auto-regulatory type of thing, given the person and their gym, um, you would do partials. You could set up partials in, you could do like this fives into the hole. I, that's one of my favorites where you do five, five full reps, five partials, full four, full, four full reps, five partials, three full reps, five partials. And those partials would be in the part of the range of motion where you feel the best contraction. So that's, that's where you're hitting the muscle most effectively. That's probably, you're not wasting time in the part of the range of motion where you're not doing so. Um, you may actually, I mean, this is all just, this is sort of a, this is an empirical type, you're, you're, getting, you're getting a good feel for the quote-unquote mind-muscle connection. You're, mm -hmm. able, you're able to spend as much time during that set as you possibly can where you're doing motion, be it a partial or a full rep, where you're really targeting the muscle that you're trying to target. So you know what it feels like to make the pec the prime mover in that particular isolation move that you've chosen. So you get a sense of that. Hopefully, there will be some neurological carryover over the course of time. So when you're doing other movements, you know what it's like to activate the pec. 
So that's something I think that people get from that. But the idea of those partials is basically just to sort of exploit the full range of motion of each rep in a way that targets the muscle you're trying to hit and not waste time with activating, um, doing compound movements and activating accessory muscles to get the weight moving around. You want to hit the, hit the part of the range of motion, if, if the exercise lends itself to this, where you're hitting the muscle you're trying to train and not use, use up nervous system energy, so to speak, in um, doing full range of motion reps in this particular case because you're really looking for a blood flow restriction type of effect. You don't have gigantic loads. You're trying to target the muscle that, you, that you're training for that particular exercise. So that's the, that's the idea there. It's not about performance per se. It's about blood flow restriction as a stimulus for muscle growth. So, okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Thoughts, Eric? Yeah, I have, I have some cool thoughts on this one. 